panelists today as um, Chief Judge Donna Stroud. Uh, to my right, we have Judge Toby Hampson. To my left, Judge Fred Gore. And we have one case for argument today. It looks like y'all are all ready to go. And um, so this must be not. This is way down here. Okay. It looks like our chairs are not lined up with our microphones. So we're going to scoot. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Very good. Um, anyway, had you already set the time for the rebuttal? Uh, okay. All right. Just want to make sure you had that. Was that five minutes? Okay. Very good. All right. We're ready to go then. May it please the court. Uh, my name is John Corella. I'm a member of the bar from Durham County, and I represent the appellant whom I will refer to as Daniel, the pseudonym used in the briefs, um, and I do plan to re re reserve about five minutes for rebuttal. Although the criminal threats statute used in this case has been in force uh, for around five years, this is the second time the state's prosecution uh, of a child under the statute for words spoken at school has reached this court. If the state continues to pr pursue charges based on conjecture, it will certainly not be the last time. As the Fourth Circuit recently observed, a school shooting is an event that has become uniquely salient to the lives of American teenagers. And teenagers being teenagers, we can expect that some may say dumb and inappropriate things at school about a school shooting. The real question and the test the state failed in this case is when the state can make those comments the basis of a juvenile delinquency prosecution under the statute and the First Amendment. In the adjudication below, the trial court erred and violated Daniel's right to free speech when it found him delinquent, imprisoned him, and placed him on probation based solely on an isolated comment in a partially overheard conversation. The state failed to present evidence of further context that would show whether Daniel's words were a true threat or even a threat within the meaning of the statute. So counsel, what, what next step or furtherance um, would you hold the state to have to need to be able to make the words actionable by the state? Would we need um, the gun in a vehicle? Would we need a gun in a backpack? Would we need shots fired? Um, help me, give, give me a scenario mm -hmm. where, based upon your argument, then it's okay. Yeah. Because I, the, and, uh, the slope and gets mighty slippery to where, and it's analogous to our government acting on, you know, good intelligence. Um, when do they stay asleep at the wheel? Or when do we take action to make sure that the unthinkable doesn't happen? That's, thank you for that question. Um, that's actually very helpful for, for how we can distinguish what's going on with this case from true threats and from you know, other kinds of uh, so, so dangers. Stop, so stop there. Yeah. Define true threat before Perfect. you go into my other question because you, you, you start dropping landmines and, and that Judge yep. Ward wants to dig up and get out the way. So define true, true threat for Judge Ward. All right, well, let's, let's dig into true threat. Um, Okay, so when I speak about true threats, I'm talking about the standard under the First Amendment. Um, and 
So I should say, since the last time this court visited this issue, there have been two controlling cases that have come down, Safety Taylor by the North Carolina Supreme Court, and in the middle of the briefing on this case, the Counterman decision. Okay, so, so let me um, lay out what I believe the law provides after those cases. Um, first of all, the starting point is that criminal statutes that restrict speech on, based on its content are presumptively unconstitutional under the First Amendment. That shows up in Taylor, also R.A.V.V. St. Paul. However, criminal statutes are allowed for certain types of speech. Obscenity, defamation, true threats, being one here, fighting words, a few narrow categories. And it's the government's burden to prove that there is a true threat within the meaning of this First Amendment law in order to proceed. Before Taylor and Counterman, there was a question as to how the state could meet its burden, whether it could just show that the statement was objectively threatening or whether it also had to prove some level of intent on the part of the speaker. Both cases gave a clear answer that the state must prove both, must prove uh, that the state was object that the statement was objectively threatening and that there was some level of intent. Um, they also both affirmed the standard from earlier cases like Watts versus United States that in deciding whether something is a true threat, and I think this gets to some of what you're talking about, you have to look at the context. And there are a couple of specific factors that show up in Watts that are repeated in Taylor that I think the state and I both agree on here. One is the context in which the statement is made. Two is the nature of the language the defendant deployed. And third is the reaction of the listeners. These are the factors that came up in Watts and that you know, are supposed to use in terms of judging the statement. The difference between Counterman and Taylor is the level of intent that needs to be proved on that second prong. So under all the cases, it needs to be objectively threatening and there needs to be some intent. What Counterman did that supersedes what, what the court said in Taylor, so is different from what I was arguing in the principal brief, is that um, the standard is a recklessness standard. That's what the Supreme Court set down. And what the state has to prove is the defendant consciously accepted a substantial risk of inflicting serious harm. In other words, the intent here, uh, which is drawn from the court's defamation cases, really, um, is that the, the defendant's intent is this conscious acceptance of risk, um, that it's not the specific purpose to threaten. Um, and it's certainly, in none of these cases, is the question whether the threat will actually be carried out. The state does not have to provide evidence that the person was in fact going to follow through. So I guess factors such as the context of the demeanor of the juvenile in this case when the statement was made, you know, the following statements afterwards. So how do you address that in, in the transcript or in, in the record? There's some discussion in the trial court of there was no laughter or there was no kind of jovialness as far as the, you know, and I don't think jovial was used, but in context of there wasn't a ha-ha-he-he, he, you know, using Judge Gore's, you know, words, there was no ha-ha-he-he. He. <laughs> Address the fact that there was no ha-ha-he-he he after the statement was made that would help provide the context at which you're trying to frame your argument right. objectively yes. to say that it was a joke versus, oh, he meant that. Yeah. And first, let me, let me be clear here, I don't, Daniel does not need to prove that this was a joke. 
Okay, so the state no. needs to prove that. However, I'm saying it would, However. Be, it would be harder for the state if there was a ha ha he he moment. Right. But yes. I don't see that in the record. And there's a reason you don't see it in the record. And the reason you don't see it in the record is, well, because there is no direct testimony by any participant of the conversation as to what was said before, what was said after. None of the three witnesses even saw Daniel's face, could say what his expression was. Uh, you're, I think you're referring to one witness's testimony that they didn't hear any laughter and they thought it was serious. That does not tell us whether it was serious or whether it was a joke. Um, the state is essentially relying on speculation and conjecture here as to what was going on in this. You can contrast- Is it, is it your position that the, 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 the only way to, to prove, I guess really either the objective or subjective piece of this is to have the person who was being spoken to testify directly? It's not, it, I mean, here what you have are, are other students who coming up on this conversation before class overhearing this threat. Is it, is it your testimony or your argument that that kind of testimony is, is sort of ipso facto insufficient? Well, I think it depends on the nature of the testimony. This is a, you know, a, a test of, of context, okay? In this case, I think it is clearly insufficient because there's just simply not enough information. But I think the, maybe the easiest way to look at this is contrast it with the cases where courts like the U.S. Supreme Court has, has done this balancing, okay? Look at Watts versus United States. That was another one, a teenager, was 18, engaging in a conversation on the mall in Washington, D.C. And he makes a statement, and he said a statement about shooting LBJ. Like, you know, I'm gonna get my sights on the president. Now, if that were like this case, maybe the state would have tried to proceed on the evidence of some bystander who overheard just that and nothing else. That would not be sufficient. What actually was presented in that state, in that, in that um, case, was evidence by several witnesses, and they didn't all agree on exactly what was said, was one government agent in there. I don't know that he was even directly speaking to any particular one of them, but they were there. They talked about his demeanor. They talked about what the conversation was that came before and what came after. And then it was clear that, oh, this is a comment on the draft, okay? This, this is him stating his political opposition to LBJ in a crude and inappropriate way, but it did not rise to the level of the true threat when taken in context. We have no context here. Not, not only were none of these three other students part of the conversation, they didn't directly overhear what was said. The only words that we have are not even directly quoted, but words like, I'm something about, I wanna shoot up the school, or I'm gonna shoot up the school, and some other student saying something about bringing a gun. Now you can also compare that to the last time this court heard one of these cases, which was in Ray UP. And that there was some similar evidence that the, the juvenile in that case said something about bombing the school. And one of the students who was there said, I'll, I'll build the bomb. However, that student testified and others testified and it was clear that the student offering to help clearly thought it was a joke and didn't want to think it was serious. But that, that sort of goes to the, this, the, the fundamental question here, right? As we struggle with these important constitutional yeah. issues and, and, and legal issues. 
There, there is a clear factual component and a clear factual determination that has to be made. And, and, and isn't that what the trial court's doing in weighing the evidence on a, on a motion to dismiss in this case? And I mean, our, you know, I mean, how much deference do we have to give the fact finder here in this court? I mean, and, and here the, the, the trial court made specific findings of fact in its adjudication order. Um, do, do we not, when it comes to issues like context and, and that sort of thing, how do we, how do we not have, have to defer to the fact well, finder? Okay, well ultimately this question of, of how the con whether the context adds up to this being a true threat is a legal question and this court is reviewing de novo, the, the trial court's conclusion on that point. Um, and also to, to, you know, in terms of factual findings, this court looks to whether they are supported or not. I believe there were two particular findings that we challenged, but they were mixed sort of findings and, and law. Um, I, and I think that what's, what we have to look at is you can go back to the, the standard on sufficiency of the evidence. It has to be more than a mere scintilla. It has to be more than suspicion or conjecture. The trial court, as the finder of fact in this case, or the jury in a, in a criminal case, can't be left to guess whether this was um, a true threat, whether there was an objective. But uh, you would concede threat. though that there's rarely, if ever, do we have direct evidence of subjective intent. Absolutely, but rarely we drawn do. From the circumstances. But here we have all these other cases that are cited in the briefs in which you can see where intent is found. Now I've cited two in which they found there was no true threat, okay? Um, and the state has, has, has cited several where there was a threat related to schools and bombings. And you can look at the evidence in those cases to see what kind of evidence would be presented. And again, it's not evidence from inside the mind of the um, speaker, as you would expect, and it's not always. So if we don't have the evidence of inside the mind, well, obviously that would be the mens rea, you know, then we use in other terms in the criminal context, actus reus. And so how do you address the issue specifically that there is a finding that the trial court found that in addressing the, the lack thereof of one context, laughter, joke, ha-ha, hee-hee, yes. the trial court specifically made a finding that, um, let's see, that there was no evidence that there was any laughter or joking at the time the threat was made. So there, there's findings of fact by the trial court mm -hmm. using the lack thereof yes. to prove the actus reus that there was no laughter, no joking, no ha ha he he, physical, you know, emotion. Mm -hmm. So in that context, it appears the trial court is using the actus reus or the lack thereof of the actus reus to prove the context of the intent. Is, is that not arguable? Well, there's no, I have no dispute really about the trial court saying there was no evidence of that because there was no evidence put on. The question is where does it go from there? Can you take the lack of evidence about context to conclude that something's a true threat so what, as opposed what to evidence of context? So what threshold of review, since there are findings of fact on that issue and the, 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 the go there next point, what threshold of review are we are if, there's, if it's there? Are we still well, to the extent there's a finding an issue, and I, and I would submit with that what you've um, what you've raised there, Judge Gore, is um, is not an issue that I would take with a finding. I mean, the state has not put on evidence, and and it was not Daniel's burden burden to put on evidence as to whether there was laughter, but there is not sufficient evidence to 
from that to conclude okay. that this was objectively or so recklessly and, intended to be So my understanding is that not disputing that finding of fact, but just arguing the sufficiency thereof. Yes. Yeah, I, and that, that helps me. Well, especially for that sort of thing, I mean, given the evidence we have here, we have other students who've heard the statements and testified about it and their reactions to it and how they perceived it. It seems to me a lot of that is the, you know, this is the disadvantage of an appellate court when we're reading a transcript uh, versus seeing someone testify and as a trial judge being able to, you know, make those determinations of credibility and weight of evidence and to make that evaluation as to uh, this, this evidence. Um, and so with the trial court making the finding, like I said, that there was the lack of that, you know, isn't that really an evaluation? The trial court's evaluation of the evidence put on by these witnesses um, and, and how they perceived it. I mean, how do we get around that? Well, I don't think the court needs to get around it. I mean, the trial court simply had insufficient evidence to make a conclusion as to whether this was a true threat or not. So um, you're saying I, there, there has to be something else, and I think that's what Judge Ward was asking. So what, yes. what would the something else well, be? And some, obviously it something be a lot else, of things, Yes, and but, so the something know. else would be the, the rest of the context. Um, and like, if these students had been standing in the hallway and could testify as to what the conversation was, and I think it's, it's important to note that there is a, a single set of words here that's all that the state has to rely on. And we do not know in what context it was said at all, other than that it was outside this classroom. And regardless of how these students, who Daniel apparently could not even see, took that, whether one, it was objectively um, threatening, and two, whether he was being reckless by making this statement, can't be judged based on that, you, you need more. And, and let, me, let me talk about what the more could look like, okay? Because I think that that's, that's what we're getting into here. So um, let's say, if you look at um, the state cited a few cases from from other states trying to show how this case is where it's been found. One was this JF case from New Jersey. In that case, there were multiple witnesses to whom the defendant at different times had mentioned plans, um, statements that they intended to do it and people began to take it seriously because they knew that this was not just a single statement uh, about shooting the school, but there was some planning there. Um, in the INRE MJS case, which was from Minnesota, it was bomb threats that were written around the school in the weeks after the school had twice been evacuated for bomb threats. Um, so, and, and the defendant was seen writing this. So we know that this was, at least with a reckless disregard for um, whether it would be seen as threatening because the school had, that had just happened at the school. Um, and this was written where anyone could see it. Um, the MR case from um, New Jersey, there was uh, also the juvenile in that case uh, was making statements that uh, he hated everyone at school and wanted to destroy it. Um, was talking about, uh, you know, being upset and I believe there was a breakup at issue in there and wanting to hurt a particular teacher. Um, so if you take it into this case, so we don't, there's all the things we don't know and this is why you have to guess. This conversation could have been it could have been like one of these. There could have been talk about, I wanna, you know, I wanna kill myself and I'm really angry at the teachers and, and now I wanna bomb the school. 
could be that the statement before that was, you know, we're having meatloaf for lunch today. Oh, I, I want to shoot up the school. <laughs> and those are completely different. Um, as are, you know, any, any range of possibilities as to what could be discussed. So what, what, we, what, what then do we do with the, the evidence um, that there had at least been some form of, of alleged prior threat to another student made by made by the juvenile in this case. I mean, there, I mean, doesn't that help, doesn't that add to the layer of context with this? It doesn't really add much in, in this, I mean, the nature, what was put on about that was that at some point in the past, he made a video about this particular student. Um, again, there's nothing uh, to say that it was, you know, there's nothing, first of all, to make it more likely that he was really going to carry out any other kind of threat. I mean, past threats sometimes are used to say, like in, in Ray ZP, we know this is somebody who just makes threats. Again, we weren't given very much about that, I think enough to make much of anything about it. I mean, certainly it can, it can play in, but the state needs something about the state. I mean, this is a prosecution based upon words. I mean, so we need to, and, and the First Amendment is very protective of words when it comes to criminal prosecution. So the state has to show that this is really a true threat, um, that this is a threat, both you know within the meaning of our statute and within the meaning of the First Amendment to go forward, and that requires some evidence. The state did not, but is that not identify it, or is put it on. Is not some evidence of, of subjective intent, whether under a recklessness standard or or anything that you know you've got somebody who's who knows what they're doing and making a threat? I mean, is, I, maybe the broader question is, why isn't that just a question of yeah. the weight to be given to this evidence rather than the legal uh, force of it? Well, there's not enough to connect that to this. I mean, I think that the, really the deficiency of the evidence about this threat is what makes that evidence so unhelpful. Um, it's not as though there was some similarities that were brought out or it was clear that he was threatening a particular student or that it related in any way to this past dispute with this other student that led to the video. Um, it's just a statement. I think it does go to why that particular student felt afraid or felt, you know, it was more serious and reported it. And again, there's nothing wrong with this, the idea that the students heard this took it seriously enough to report it to the school resource officer. The question is what happens then? I mean, if the school's going to, in, doesn't want people making comments like this that are inappropriate um, in school, you know, the school can certainly investigate that and take any kind of action. The question here is, can the state then move on to a prosecution based on what was said without pulling in anything else from that investigation? I mean, they did not even, identify any of the other speakers, even though this was a class of 15 students outside the choir hall that apparently didn't know who anyone else was, even though they're their classmates, couldn't say what anyone else's reaction was specifically. So I guess, Counselor, when you say not knowing what anyone else's reaction, how do you address, you know, the a student who did testify and in, in the transcript that testified that it, um, how, how did you feel when you heard, how, how did that make you feel? He said, it made me sick to my stomach. What do you mean, sick to my stomach? You know, and the context seems to be sick to my stomach with fear. 
so when we talk about the objectivity of it mm -hmm. how do you get around the state hearing okay this statement you know could have been carried out it, it rose to the level of creating fear within listeners how, how does that not get to a true threat when you have the objectivity of a student saying it physically made them sick to their stomach feeling of with fear well I don't think it's there's there's any need to get get around how that student felt about the statement I mean we're but trying to get to Daniel's the, intent but does it that get to the objectivity and whether it's a true threat if it creates fear within the listener the the factors that I mentioned from Watts are not just about the subjective attempt those are about whether it's objectively threatening and objectively threatening is also where things fell apart in, in Ray ZP because the context provided that a person hearing this and understanding the conversation would not really regard this as a true threat. And again, we're looking, you know, we're prosecuting the speaker of the alleged threat here and it's that person's intent. All of the witnesses testified that they couldn't see his face, didn't hear other words of the conversation weren't part of it and didn't know what else came before or after. Certainly, it may be reasonable that, that that isolated, those isolated words, someone hearing them, you know, a, a high school student today would take them let me seriously you, enough to report it to the let, school. Let me ask yeah. you this, counselor, and this is just an analogy. Judge Gore is big on analogies. Sure. Do you have to see a sniper for a sniper to be a threat? No. So, using your context, they didn't see his face. Why would having to see his face to get his expression have to be a factor for the state to have to use in being able to bring a criminal prosecution? Well, it's not that seeing his, his face is an independent factor, but that's just one piece of how there's just nothing here. Yes. I mean, there there is no... Um, and I've been peppering you with more questions than other, and you got your... You fight, you're into your rebuttal time and just try out. I'm fine if, since I've been asking more questions, giving them more time. To you, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll let him finish that answer. Uh, and now I've uh, lost my thought for a moment. I apologize. I think, I that's want, all right. I that's all right. Um, time, so. <laughs> um, the facial it's, expression. It's, 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 yes, it's, it's one piece of what's missing. I, I, I would say that it's that. Okay. And, and with that, I, I, I'll reserve my time. And, okay. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Lindsay Smith. I'm with the Attorney General's Office, and I represent the state in this appeal. Your Honors, um, as uh, we've already been discussing this morning. At, at its heart, this case is really about whether a young man who talks about shooting up his school while at school and in the presence of his peers can be held responsible for his actions. Um, now, the, the, the main sort of argument here that the juvenile has been making, um, at least this morning, is that the First Amendment bars his adjudication under the school threats statute. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a couple of different reasons that that's incorrect. Um, but what I do want to do first is just clarify um, and, and reiterate the standard here. Um, 
as, as this court knows, you know, there is no abstract question of law uh, that this court needs to decide today. That's already been decided by our Supreme Court in State versus Taylor, as well as the United States Supreme Court in Counterman versus Colorado. And so the legal standard here is very clear. A true threat is a statement that is both objectively and subjectively threatening, um, and it is not protected by the First Amendment. And both Taylor and Counterman clarified that a subjective analysis is required. Now on that subjective analysis, I do want to dig in a little bit into the recklessness standard that Counterman um, articulated, right? Because I don't know that, that we really got the specific statements from Counterman. And what the majority of, uh, in Counterman said is that this, the recklessness standard involves insufficient concern with risk. And it means that the speaker is aware that others could regard his statements as threatening violence and delivers them anyway, right? Now, Mr. Carella has conceded, and, and I don't think there's any question here, that this recklessness standard is, is a different standard than the one that was articulated by our Supreme Court in Taylor. It is a, uh, a different subjective standard, but on this constitutional question, Counterman does control this court's analysis. So, what I want to do is talk a little bit about both the objective standard that we've spent some time discussing already and then turn to that subjective standard. And I want to parse those out a little bit because I think it's, it's easy to get lost in um, merging those two standards together. And I think if we parse them out, Your Honors, um, it becomes clear why the state's evidence here was sufficient on both of these uh, standards. So first of all, Taylor did articulate and, and uh, reiterated these factors and these considerations that courts look at um, in determining whether a statement was objectively threatening. The context in which the statement was made, the nature of the language which was deployed, as well as the reaction of listeners upon hearing the statement. Now, We've talked a lot about context here, and I want to talk. I want to turn to that first because I do think it's very important. Right now, Mr. Corella and the juvenile here have argued that there's there's no context here because there's no evidence about whether uh, what the response was of the, um, the the students to whom this juvenile was actually making his statement. Right. Well, what I would say is. We do have quite a bit of context here. We have a general context about the, the atmosphere in which students and high school students go to school today, particularly in the culture and this, you know, this generation of school shootings that these students have come up through and, and are very much aware of. Um, we also have a more specific context of this particular student and um, the interactions that these students have had with this student in the past. I guess, Counselor, we, and not disagreeing with the climate of the overarching issues plaguing, you know, schools and school shootings, um, that, that's hard to pinpoint into the specific facts of this case and obviously can't be controlling. It's more of a policy argument. What specifically around the facts of this particular case are controlling to guide us to the standard at which you're, you're arguing should be applied today? Because I'm not disagreeing with the, you know, the, the macro, but get us to the micro of the facts centered around this case, because that's, that's what's the most important to this juvenile saying, well, hey, these facts don't, don't, shouldn't apply because you don't have enough here. Get, get us there. 
Sure, Your Honor. Now, I, 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 I will get to that question absolutely, and I think part of the general context does go to the micro, because you have three students who testified to their fear about hearing this statement, right? You have a student that said it was very scary because of all of these school shootings, and you never know what can happen at any minute. You have another student who said, I don't want to be in the next school to get shot up. And I think that is very relevant to the context here, and in fact, um, you know, we've cited some cases in our briefs, including one of a panel from this court, that have talked about the importance of taking into consideration the overall political and cultural context. I mean, the, the Benham case um, that, that a panel of this court decided where the court looked at, the, there the defendant had um, uh, disseminated wanted posters with an abortion doctor's face and uh, information on it, and there the court found it very relevant that those types of posters and this general cultural context around um, you know, abortion and particularly violence against abortion doctors was very relevant as to whether that statement was, a, was objectively threatening and where a reasonable doctor would, would feel objectively threatened by seeing those statements. I think it's very similar here, right? You have three students who, who were afraid because of this statement because of this general cultural atmosphere of school shootings. And I think that's relevant to whether a reasonable student on hearing this statement would be afraid. All right, so let's let's take that to the next logical. That's why I'm wanting you to get it yep. here. And, yes, sir. And, and, and I, I try to feed folks out of the same trough. The, the DC sniper that was shooting folks at gas stations outside of um, DC and through the tailgate of the vehicle. Do you stop going and gassing up your car just because that's happening in DC and North Carolina? I understand your argument, not turning a blind eye, but we have to look at the law as it applies to this defendant as it pertains to the individual liberties and rights, protecting the overall rights of victims but get me to how, because we, we can't use generalized fear, right, in applying to the specific fear needed to evaluate the standard in this case. So not disagreeing with the argument, but I don't know how controlling generalized fear can be when we're looking at the individual, you know, standard that the state is held to, to prove this defendant created fear. So not disagreeing with it. However, I don't know how controlling that can be from a generalized standpoint when we need the state to prove the specific fear that's generated from this defendant. Sure. So I think um, a couple of other pieces to, to take into consideration here. I think the first is the language that this student used, right? I mean, that's one of the, the pieces of evidence that are one of the factors. Um, and I do want to point out, or at least distinguish the Watts case a little bit. Um, that's the case where the the um, young man was a was at a political rally and made the statement about, specifically the statement was, you know, if he had been drafted or he got in his draft card, he said, if they put a gun in my hand, the first person in my sights is going to be LBJ, right? And one of the um, one of the things that the court found very relevant there as to why that statement was not a true threat was because it was a conditional statement, 
right? So this is, a, this is something that's likely not gonna happen. You know, this, this is a student who has conditioned this statement um, all, all, you know, on this event happening. Of course, we don't have that here, right? We have no conditional statement. Um, I would also point out that, the, that in Watts, the context there was, was a political rally. This is politically dissident speech, and that's, that often comes up in these true threat cases, right, where you have um, you know, individuals who are uh, you know, um, making statements that, that may have elements of violence to them in the context of political dis dissidents. We certainly do not have that here. Um, we, we don't have any indication that this was a student who was making some kind well, of- Well, how, how, how do we not know that? Well, we have no, I mean, we don't have any testimony but about- the, And the burden's on the state to, to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, isn't that right? That is correct, Your Honor. So I think what your, what your colleague has been arguing is that, that the, there's some responsibility or obligation on the part of the state to actually then show the context in which this, this statement was being made and not just rely on a statement in isolation and, and you know, a few students who, over, who happened to overhear it or hear a snippet of whatever conversation was going on, that the state has a greater burden to, to, to prove some context here to make, to hit that objective standard. So I think a couple of points I'd like to make to that, Your Honor. I think the first is, I, I don't know that the state necessarily has a burden to provide the specific, um, you know, uh, context of the specific conversation. Um, I think the state has a, has a burden, at least on the objective standard, to show whether a reasonable uh, listener would feel threatened. Right? I think that's, that's the standard that we have here, right? And what we have here is we have three students testifying to their fear about, uh, on hearing the statement. Now, yes, that's their subjective fear, but I think if you have three students who are testifying about that, I think that goes to whether a reasonable student would be afraid upon hearing the statement. I think this, and that's, that goes to one of the three factors that is articulated in Taylor, right? We, we look at, you know, what, what was the reaction of, of listeners on hearing the statement? And, I, and this is actually where, this is the second point I want to make, Your Honor, this is where this really, this case is very distinguishable from, from in Ray ZP, right? Um, which is a very similar case. Um, in fact, it's, it's similar in that we have um, we have th we have a student who says I'm gonna I'm gonna bomb the school um, or I'm gonna blow up the school, um, and then you have three listeners who are students. Not necessarily. There's no evidence in ZP that those were students that this that this particular student was making the statement to. But these again are three listeners. Um, but but that's kind of where the similarity ends, right? And what we have there is we have th three students who testified. We didn't take this student seriously. One student said, "I thought it was a joke." You know, um, the other two students said, "Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really think this was this was something to be taken seriously." That is very different from the scenario that we have here, where we have three students who say who are saying, "Yes, in fact, we did take this seriously." And one of the reasons we took this seriously, or at least for one student, was that this particular juvenile had made a statement in the past. Um, or had, had, had made a, this video in the past about this specific student who overheard the statement that he was gonna blow this student and other students' brains out. So I do think that's very relevant, right, is that as to whether a reasonable listener would feel threatened by this statement or feel that this statement was a threat. And, and that's going to that objective standard, right? Was there, was there any evidence as to sort of a, a temporal link between that prior threat and, and, and this statement or, you know, or any kind of 
other link other than it was made to this particular? No, Your Honor. There's there's no evidence of that. Uh, but I do think, you know, I don't think there has to be that that temporal link, right? Because again, what we're looking at generally is, you know, we're putting ourselves in the the sort of reasonable listener position here. And the question is whether, you know, a reasonable student here would have felt threatened or felt that this this statement was threatening. And I think that's that's very relevant, right? So when we have a particular student who has been the target of threats by this juvenile in the past, as to whether that states that student would feel afraid um, by, a, by, by a statement like this. Um, and I think I want to go, I, 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 I want to back up a little bit on the standard, um, just to reiterate that, you know, there is no, the, the state does not have the burden to prove or does not have to prove that the juvenile intended to threaten any students, um, nor that the juvenile intended to carry out the threat, right? One of the prohibitions against true threats, and this, the US Supreme Court um, has articulated this multiple times, right, is to protect against the fear and the terror that comes from these threats and the disruption that that causes, right? And so that's why we have, I mean, that's part of the reason we have this statute, right? Is to protect students from the fear and the disruption that these types of threats cause when they are made or these types of statements cause when they are made in the school environment. You know, as well as, I mean, I think there's a subsidiary interest, right, in, in um, you know, catching these statements, you know, or these types of, catching violent actions at the point of a threat, right? We don't, to, to your question earlier, Judge Gore, we, we don't want to let the, those kinds of actions go any longer. We want to make sure that we're, we're nipping this in the bud. But, but again, that just kind of go, I just wanted to pull back and, and think about, you know, at least the reason for this statute, but also the reason that we, that we proscribe and that the U.S. Supreme Court proscribes true threats from the protections of the First Amendment. I do want to talk a little bit more about the subjective test here, right? Um, I think first, it's important to think about the language that Counterman used when articulating this subjective test. The question is whether the student had sufficient awareness that his statement could be taken as a threat such that he acted recklessly by making that statement, right? So the speaker is aware that others could regard his statement as threatening violence and delivers them anyway. Now, as, uh, as I think uh, Judge Hampson uh, rightfully acknowledged, we don't have direct testimony of the juvenile's intent, but of course that's not unusual. Um, this is why uh, we, it, it, it's black letter law that a defendant's mental state can be inferred from other evidence. Um, there's really a couple of different uh, pieces of, of evidence here that I think are, are useful um, and are, are critical in determining whether this particular juvenile um, had the reckless intent um, in order to satisfy the standard. I think the first um, has to do with the witness's own awareness, and I'll explain why I think this is relevant, right? Um, the, the student witnesses, as we already talked about, they had this general awareness about this, this fear of school shootings. I think high school students in general go to school today with a, with a fear of school shootings, and these specific students had this fear of school shootings. Now, I think the reason this is relevant is that these are all high school students who are around the same age as the juvenile defendant. They are in classes with him, and their thought processes and fears are informed by this current 
sort of paradigm of school shootings. And so I think it's a reasonable inference that this juvenile had that same level of awareness, right, about the, 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 this, you know, the school shootings and the types of statements, um, you know, the, the types of the fear that can, be, that can be engendered by these types of statements. So, so you're, you're making um, our arguments and, and adding a lot of context and, and nuance and, and inference um, to your analysis, but, you know, the, here the trial court made specific findings of fact, um, and so to what extent are we sort of stuck with the trial court's findings of fact, and to what extent can we add your context and, and inferences to, to, to our analysis, because although the trial court did make some specific findings of fact, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not particularly robust. So, the, so, so that's correct, Your Honor. I mean, uh, under the standard of review, that this is a this is essentially a sufficiency of the evidence standard with an additional layer of, of independent review, right? Because of the constitutional question, um, and so yes, the trial court's finding of, of fact are you know binding on on this court, and this court cannot um, you know draw. Um, you know, rewrite those findings or, or draw additional inferences. However, I would say that on the on the sufficiency of the evidence standard, all inferences are to be drawn in favor of the state, um, and the evidence is to be viewed in the light most favorable to state. And I think that's very important here, right? Um, is to to look at the evidence that the that the trial court, um, or at least the findings of fact that the trial court made, and to to draw any um, any additional inferences uh, in 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 the, in the state's favor, Your Honor. So on that on that same vein. Is it, is it that these findings of fact are, as the defendant argues, insufficient, or are they distinguishable between the generalized fear that you talk about? I'm not sure I quite understand the question. The defendant is arguing that they're not sufficient to carry the day. Um, but how, do, how are we to look at the specific differences in some of the cases, because the glaring one to me is the fact that you have prior conduct by the defendant, you know, allegedly perpetrated on one of the witnesses or witnesses, and that's not in the trial court transcript. It wasn't used as prior bad acts, but it was seems to have been used of, of the conduct or the actions taken by the listener. So how is that distinguishable between the cases that we have right now? So I think the I think what you have here is you do have I mean you do have it in the in the in the evidence and witness testimony that this particular student that one of the students was in fact the subject of a threat. So it wasn't um, you know it wasn't uh, just part of the the evidence that the court uh, found um, later after after the adjudication testimony. Um, you did have this particular. Um, uh, student, and I think that goes to um, a, the, the the student's level of intent. I mean, I think um, you know this is a student who has 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 in fact made statements like this before, scary statements, um, and and so I think it's it's reasonable to infer that those statements that he understands the consequences and the and the type of reaction that is going to be generated by those particular statements. I mean, I think also, you know, one, one way to distinguish this case, particularly from ZP, is, you know, again, we don't necessarily, I mean, I, am, I have talked about this sort of more generalized level of fear, but I, the reason that I'm talking about that is because these students themselves testified to their own specific fear, and that's very different than what we have in NRA ZP, right, where we have students testifying 
you know, I didn't really take the student seriously. Um, I thought it was a joke. And here you have students who are specifically testifying to their own level of fear. And it is because of, hey, this, we have this awareness about school, school shootings. And so I think, again, that goes to this juvenile's you know, level of intent, right? Um, is, is that he, as a, as a young person, as a, a young man who is in high school, has this level of awareness that these students could, um, or that, uh, that these kinds of statements could engender fear among his peers should he, should he find them. And so I think that's, um, I think that's the, the most compelling uh, evidence that, that, the, that the state has put on, and, it, and it's all in the witness testimony. Um, and so I think to go back to, I think to go back to the, the standard of review, Your Honor, um, this, this, is a, this is a standard, it really is, I mean, what this court needs to determine is whether there was sufficient evidence to show whether the, there was, this statement was a true threat by, uh, it was an objectively threatening and the student had the subjective intent to threaten. Um, it's not a particularly demanding standard. Now, this court does have the have the obligation to review the entire record to ensure that the student's First Amendment rights are not being infringed. But I think what we can point to here as well is that we've got this, um, you know, fairly distinguishable language from some of the other cases that Mr. Carella has talked about here. This is not a a statement that's that's being made. Um, you know, uh, in, in the context of political, uh, a, a political statement um, or political dissonant language. But is, isn't, isn't the, the broader concern here that we're, we're, we're sort of shifting the burden back to the defendant to prove context? That, I mean, you know, taken to its extreme, uh, you seem to be articulating that all the state would have to, to put on is evidence that a student overheard by other students said something about shooting up a school. And now you, you seem to be articulating that then that, that, that's enough to get you past the motion to dismiss, that's the, the argument, and then it, the burden's on the defendant to prove context. So I think that, I, I understand your question, Your Honor. I think, uh, I think a couple of points there. I think the first is, I don't think you simply have to have uh, evidence that other three that stu other students overheard the student say he shot up the school. I think what is very relevant and important here is the student's testimony themselves and their testimony to their fear at hearing this statement, right? I think that is very relevant. I think also is very relevant. The reason for their fear, in part, is because of some of the past statements of this of this student, right? Um, I think the other point, though, I, I, and I I, do, I want to acknowledge that the concern is I, I don't think that the state is shifting the burden here. I mean, I do. What I would say is the state doesn't necessarily have to anticipate every single defense that, that a, a defendant has, would raise, potentially. And I, and I would say here, there, there was no, this was not raised, right? Um, or at least the, the, you know, the, this implication that there was some other context, <clears throat> excuse me, that there was some other context here was never raised in the, in the trial court. And I think, you know, I do think it's very telling that that was never raised in the trial court, that we don't have any testimony or evidence um, you know, by the student. Now, I don't think that means we're shifting the burden. I do think that the state has, has proven its case by, by providing sufficient evidence, in part because of the, 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 the witness testimony here, right? Um, but I do think it is very telling that we do not have any other evidence um, that, that to the extent that the student would like to say, hey, there was some context here that was missing, 
that was never provided, right? So, I, you know, I, again, I, I don't want to say that we're shifting the burden to the student, but I do think it's relevant. I, I guess the thing is, as in a lot of these cases, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it might be that they did a very extensive investigation and none of the other students actually heard anything, so they didn't have anything to offer. It might be that there were students who did hear something that might would have been favorable to the defendant or would have been favorable to the state. But this is what we have to work with, which is, you know, always the case, I guess. Um, so, you know, but the, the, you're saying that this is enough to get over the sufficiency standard, although that maybe there theoretically could have been more, or maybe not. There might not have been more, um, but this would be enough. That's correct, Your Honor, is, is that based, the court has to look at the evidence we do have in the record. And based on the evidence we do have in the record, that is enough to get over the sufficiency standard. It's not simply one student heard this student say, you know, I want to shoot up the school. Now, I will say, I, I do want to put a, you know, at least underline the fact that it is a concerning statement, even if all we had was one student saying, I heard this student say, I want to shoot up the school. Now, again, I'm, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know if that would be enough, um, but here we have more than that, right? We do have other, these students testifying, not simply about, I heard this student say, I shot up the school, but we were afraid because of this. Um, and I think that's, and again, that goes both to the objective test and the subjective test in order to show that this is a, a true threat, Your Honors. Counsel, address for and the defendant get, didn't get a chance to address it, Judge Floyd Pepper and First Amendment question. Um, the issue that's raised by the defendant, uh, and obviously I understand the state's position on it, but articulate your stance on the discretion of the secure uh, custody post-adjudication prior to disposition. Sure, absolutely, Your Honor. I mean, the state's position on it is that, that this is not properly before the court. Um, because it was not um, uh, noticed uh, f for appeal by, by the student uh, as it should have been under. It's, it's part of the adjudication order. Uh, you know, I think it, it, it is mentioned in the adjudication order, but it's not, I, what I would say, it doesn't merge with the adjudication order. This is a separate, a separate order. It's not, the adjudication order is not dependent on that. Um, and it's not, uh, and, and so, I, so these are two separate orders, essentially, um, at least when the trial court made the, made the order um, uh, following the adjudication. Um, so, so the state makes two arguments on, that, on this point. One, that it was not preserved as part of the appeal, and, and two, that it's otherwise moot. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't, I didn't see any argument on the merits of, of the actual uh, non-secure custody here. That's correct. And you're, you're, not, you're not wrong, Your Honor. Um, and, and the state concedes that the, that the, the, the trial court's um, decision here was, was inappropriate. Um, so so the, the, the state's argument here is really that just under the rules of, of, of appellate procedure that this is not um, properly before this court. Okay, and uh, understand an argument, obviously. But is it, is it the state's position that if, if it was reviewed on the merit that it was inappropriate based upon the lack of discretion? What's, what's the state's position on the merits of it? So, I mean, I think what we would say is, yes, this is, a, this is an abuse of discretion standard, Your Honor. Um, the continuance, 
there's two different statutes that, that really come into play here. I mean, you really have the, both the order of the continuance as well as the, the order of secured custody. Um, the order of continuance, I think, is, is the more problematic uh, uh, order here, and that's um, simply because there's really only, uh, except for certain specific instances, there's an, only an extraordinary um, cases that, that a continuance can, can, be, can be issued, and I think that's, that's, that's probably the problematic piece here, Your Honor. Okay, and that, that understood, but is there anything in the record that would support the trial court's discretion in, in placement of secured custody? That, that so the and, I, and I know we're pushing you to have to address it because you're trying to avoid it like the plague, but, you know, um, just calling it out like it is, but is there anything in the record that gets the judge there to justify the secured placement? So I think on the secured placement on the statute is the, the statute is pretty broad in, in allowing the in allowing judges to which, which is why I said the record because that, that's correct we notice anything in the record that gets the trial judge there to grant and use that discretion for secure custody. So what we have in the record, Your Honor, and this is not part of the testimony on adjudication, it's really in the colloquy um, between the, the, the trial counsel and, and the court, is we have that this is a student who is a high flyer. Um, this is his, he's got more than four points, I believe, um, at least in the juvenile uh, system, uh, and so it's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's got a, a high level of offenses. And had there been placement or placement. had there been custody, continued custody, insecured custody, post-petition, leading up and until the adjudication year? Uh, I don't know if that's in the record, Your Honor. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Um, my time is finished. up. Well, you can. Well, I, 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 we were, yeah, no. I'll give you a couple minutes to finish since I'll give him a couple minutes also. Um, so, I, I really, the, just for, for the reasons that we've discussed, Your Honors, um, uh, the state asks that this court uh, uphold the adjudication of this student under the school threat statute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I just want to go back directly to the, the record for a second, because I want to clarify something and just, just go to what was there. Okay, so first of all, there were three witnesses, only two of them heard Daniel at all. One of them, uh, quote on page five, was said that he was going to shoot up the school. And that's the testimony. The second one on page 14 says, he said that they was going to shoot up the school. The prosecutor then asks, and do you know who he communicated that to? No, sir. The Constitution requires more evidence than this in any setting, and it is the state's burden to put on this context and not to ask the defendant to put it on. But this burden is particularly appropriate in a school setting. The Supreme Court wrote in Shelton v. Tucker that the vigilant protection of constitutional freedoms is nowhere more vital than in the community of American schools. And the Fourth Circuit in the Starbuck case, which was about silencing student speech about a school shooting, merely because it communicates controversial or upsetting ideas, that silencing the speech would be incompatible with the very purpose of public education. Counterman and other cases talk in a general way about breathing space for the First Amendment around all of these areas of unprotected speech. The state's prosecution of Daniel without evidence of a true threat 
denied him that breathing space, as well as the opportunity to learn and make mistakes like any other high school student. This court should vacate the unconstitutional adjudication and disposition. Um, in terms of the other issues in this case, I would um, just say on, on issue three that I, I addressed in the reply brief, um, the state's notice argument, notice of appeal argument. Um, I think it is not supportable that a separate notice of appeal would be required to challenge a continuance between the adjudication and disposition any more than it would be required in a criminal case or um, in the cases where this court has previously re reviewed that issue. So the response to that is in the reply brief. I won't go into it at length here. Um, and unless there are further questions. Um, Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much for your arguments.